Welcome back to It Starts Now, the happy hour of finance and business. My name is Stan Lane, and my favorite guest, Keenan Williams, is here. Keenan D. Williams. So um, I'm super excited to continue our conversation. And this is yeah. part three. Part three. Part three. Super excited. Um, part three. Shout out to the weather. It's getting cold out here in New York. <laughs> super facts. Um, there's so much I want to talk about that sure. we... We unpacked a lot. Uh, the first one was more about the founder, getting the founder started. Yep. Um, what are the key initial things that they need to get become successful? Yep. The second part, we thought we were gonna go into like a VC dive, but we actually went into something I thought that was very powerful. For sure. Bro. It's more about healing. Healing journey. Healing journey. And yeah, and how the, 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 the two align to become successful. Like you yes. can't have one without the other. Not so they basically run in parallel. 100%. And I, I thought that was very important. And the, the, the way we unpacked it together, I felt like we were going through a healing process ourselves. Oh, we were. The vulnerability yeah. was, was was energetic. Yeah, it was very candid. Yeah. 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 And, I, and I think to me that was very important. And to top that, I think it was important to have the, that discussion with you. Right, because you were able to articulate certain things. It's like we're going through this journey. Uh, we're both at two intersections, right? And mm -hmm. we're trying to meet by identifying, oh, this is what you went through. This is what I went through. And we're connecting the dots, right? But part of the journey is also understanding what it is that you're trying to overcome to become, right? We're trying to become this person by overcoming a lot of internal conflict that yeah. some people have, right? Yeah. And I thought Child, was, trauma, trauma, right? And I thought that was very important. Yeah. But now we're gonna do this shift where we're gonna go into the VC conversation. And investors. And investors. So what I, I thought that was very important and I want to dive in. So we're gonna do a plunge, right? And really get into the VC concept of like, Let's break down the VC. Let's break down the phases that you go through. Yep. Like the raising phases and uh, the significance of the reason why you need capital. Yeah. Right. And then go into like, uh, you know, why some people exit between Series A and before they get to IPO and, and, and the purpose behind the IPO. So uh, what, what, whatever you want well, to tackle well, first. From, from from the VC, from the investor standpoint. From the investor standpoint. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, quick background. Um, I guess I've been a consistent guest. Yes, yes, yes. It yes. starts now. Um, so thank you, Stanley, for bringing me back. Keenan Williams, co-founder and president of Resi, a rental platform uh, that is nationwide that allows you to rent an apartment instantaneously from your phone for free. I also am founder and managing partner of Stratum Growth, an advisory firm focusing on supporting first-time and early-stage founders. And I also run an angel fund called Stratum Capital. So what I do on a regular basis when it comes to the VC side is I definitely have an entire pocket of friends on the investor side at all stages. Some are full-time employees that are just angels. So they invest checks anywhere between five to 25K. 
mostly out of uh, bonus payment, uh, bonuses they collect every single year or some investments that start to pay off. I have um, higher octane angels, which they're no longer full-time employees. They just write angel checks because they've gotten some exits. Some of the companies that were early on, they were Are they active? Super, they're active, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's the, that's the full-time job, Okay, being an angel. And then I have friends who are early stage VCs where they literally are at the fund, uh, no longer doing the analyst work, they're the decision maker at the early stage fund. And they have you know very specific verticals, so they focus on different areas. The sort of last group I have is a couple of VCs that are late stage investors, so they like to be in the, the A, B, and late stage. Um, today is really a different environment than when we first met. Mm-hmm. And so my narrative today, my feedback today is going to be very uh, accurate to where we're going in the market. And so we're, at, we're approaching the end of the year. January is right around the corner. 2022 wasn't a really abysmal year for VCs. So the market is very dry. A lot of venture capitalists are not allocating money as we wrap the year up. They have an idea what they want to do in January, but they're not necessarily asked to start immediately deploying capital. Next year will get worse in the tech ecosystem. Big companies like Meta and Amazon will continue layoffs. Smaller startups will go under. A lot of high value startups that raised money in the last two years, 2020, 2021, uh, even early 2022, they're getting devalued and they have down rounds. And you know, cash is king when it comes to startups. And a lot of companies are about to run out of cash. And I think that is due to the last two years post-pandemic were a boom time when money was cheap. And so everyone was throwing cash around. And a lot of people raised too much or too high valuations. And they can't substantiate those valuations because there's no growth. So what a lot of early stage VCs and investors are talking to me now is they're treating seed stage companies like a series A company. So what that means is seed stage founders, early stage founders are going to have a harder time raising capital because the demands from what investors define as success have changed. Mm-hmm. I think when you could just sell forecasts, I believe we will grow at this rate. Here's the reason why. Here's the math. That form, There was a formulaic approach to kind of validating someone's forecast. There was a formulaic approach in the VC community to validating projections in general. Mm-hmm. Let me... Let me... Uh, slow down for sure, a second. Sure. So it's basically you're selling the story what of it will what be. It, with it. Okay. Yep. What it will be. And I just want to make it simple for everybody. For sure. And what it will be for most people, or what it's expected to be for most people, is some consistent growth rate. Mm-hmm. So and you're that, selling the story. At the early stage, you are. Right. But right. now, VCs want you to sell revenue. They want to see a trailing 12 months of revenue. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter how small it is. They want to see that you've been making money and you've been growing the money you've been making on a gross and a net basis, before expenses and after expenses. And I think for early stage founders, 2023 is gonna be tough as shit. Mm -hmm. And for early stage venture capitalists, it's gonna be even tougher. If you are a VC or an angel and you want to really get into this VC game, really wanna get into the startup investment game, you're looking at a challenging year where a lot of the unit economics or um, profitability factors uh, or potential ways that you can kind of understand the math behind the expenses of a company. The unit economics are bad. A lot of investors for a long time could just ignore weak economics because they bet on the teams, they bet on the founders, they bet on the vision of the business and the space the business was in, how big was the market the business was in. Now, everything's flipped. Early stage companies are going to get backed if they're focusing on a niche, a very small, specific niche where they can become the largest fish in a small pond, Right. I think one of the previous episodes I talked about the young lady who wants to focus on selling to first time immigrant 
used car dealership owners in America, right? right? And there's yeah. a prior very that was a, a great analogy. Right. And there's a prior real small subset of mm-hmm. foreign owned used car lots mm-hmm. and major cities, mm-hmm. right? So that young lady now is probably one of the one of the most backable businesses because her customer acquisition cost, her CAC, CAC, her customer acquisition cost is probably low. Her sales cycle from the moment she tries to reach out to a customer to the time she closes a customer is shortened because it's a very niche business. Mm-hmm. And most importantly, from a cost perspective, it's cheaper to go after a small niche than the big ass market. Mm-hmm. And so for VCs, historically the last two years, all they saw was we're going to this big market. Now you have to shift your entire lens and take the bet on the business that's hyper-focused. That's a big transition. And that's opposite of what the market tells founders to be on. So if you're an early stage investor and you want to get serious about being in startups, I think it takes you getting really smart on how to invest in businesses that are cash flowing. Mm-hmm. Not to say that that's hard because if it makes money, that means it's cash flowing, mm-hmm. but really start to understand the math behind scaling cash flow. Mm-hmm. How do you shrink or keep expenses fixed while you grow revenue? How do you grow market share at a multiple greater than the cost of entering that market, right? So if I'm in New York City and I'm only in the Bronx or I'm only in Queens, how much does it cost for me to start doing my operations in a different borough? versus a different state, mm-hmm. versus a different region of the US. Mm-hmm. And so I think early stage startup investors need to start studying, right? It's gonna take a lot of learning curve, but that that's sort of my my high level thought process just to share, to set the, the tone of the conversation, is that a lot of early stage venture investors need to recognize that unit economics mean more than anything. All the expense ratios and the real math on expense management, cash burn is super important. Recognizing that a business model is specifically built or targeted for a niche versus a wide market. And is that founder really uh, built to be hyper-focused, right? Most founders want to sell you the big picture vision and the large story, but what you want to invest your first $50,000 in is a venture like Alameen from Pavement, right? Shout out to to Pavement. In two years, this kid goes from flipping soap out of Queens to a million dollar ARR, making 21 grand a week for his business. He's fresh out of, excuse me, tech stars and didn't raise capital, mm-hmm. right? Pavement is a prime example of where you will want to put your first check in because literally with $50,000, he could go and get a certain amount of trucks, which gives him a certain amount of contracts, which allows him to deliver a certain amount of packages at a certain dollar price. Everything he does is calcul- can be calculated, everything. There's not one thing Pavement can do in the logistics and shipping business as a package delivery platform um, that isn't math driven because it's all um, price sensitive. He's gonna build software for pavement. He'll eventually sell software for pavement, but right now the company is a package delivery platform and it makes money. And so I think he was not sexy a year and a half ago, right? Everyone wanted SaaS and can you sell to the big market and can you sell to big vendors? Mm-hmm. Now Alameen looks like a fucking genius. Right. And all the early stage people that told him no, mm-hmm. they're, they're losing. If you gave that kid 15K two years ago, it'd be worth over 100 bands right now. On, based on his trajectory. The beauty of his trajectory is it's based on real revenue he makes. It's not forecast, right? But what, what, what is his uh, network effect when it comes to that? You know, it's really driven by, his business model is essentially he's solving the last 100 feet of delivery within last mile. So last mile looks like when a package gets from the manufacturer overseas to the distribution center in America, so fresh off the cargo plane, that distribution center to your door is like three steps. He's solving for the very last step, which is delivery driver in the truck to your front door. Mm-hmm. Um, archaic, if you think about it, uh, but very complicated if you don't think about it, because 
you have apartment complexes, uh, private gates, yada, yada, yada. So it's like Waze in real time. You know what? Now he's transitioning. He's making Salesforce for delivery drivers. Okay. Waze initially was going to tell you how to navigate to the door. But even when you get to the door, if I, if I deliver to a, a room in the school and I pull up to the school, how am I going to know where the room is? Mm-hmm. I have no concept, right? So it's not. So it's no longer Waze because the address isn't the solution. The front door is the solution. Same with apartment complex. So he's building um, Salesforce for last mile delivery. So essentially a massive CRM where delivery drivers can talk to each other, pull data on buildings and be hyper efficient on not just delivering packages quickly, but getting it to the right address. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but but that, that's an example. that back to as an investor? Yeah, so if you're an investor, I think the template of, of Alameen is, is, is pretty consi- consistent. The model. The model, okay. right? Um, he earns revenue per box delivered. His entire revenue is based on how many boxes he can deliver in a day. His entire enterprise is how many boxes can be delivered a day and how many markets he's live in based on how many drivers he has. Average driver delivers 80 packages a day. Average package price is anywhere from three to six dollars. Let's call it even 450 in the middle. 450 times 80 times 10. That's Charlotte. And then he's got Atlanta and he's got other markets. So net net on a gross basis, you can just easily do the back of the napkin math to how he's a million dollar a year business. Um, another one is is my buddy uh, Leslie Touche, Touche who runs uh, Next Play, um, another multi million dollar business, which is based on how many clients can he get for his model of recruiting for the annual fee, right? That's it. Mm-hmm. 10 clients paying X per year equals Y, mm-hmm. right? His expenses minus X give you Z, mm-hmm. his net, right? When you have simple businesses where you can run income expense, net income math, you can really see why it's profitable to take a piece of that business and where it can scale to. I think a lot of people think over the last two years, it had to be software, had to be tech. Had to be had tech to be first. SaaS, yeah. Had to be SaaS. And now they're recognizing like, oh shit, needs to make money. Right? And the worst thing about SaaS that no one really talks about is the average life cycle of a large enterprise client in SaaS is three years. Mm-hmm. It takes you a year to onboard them and then takes them a year to kind of figure out how to leverage it to the max. And then in year three, it's just a cost basis. If you got an ROI, is this ROI at this purchase price per, per month or per year for this software? more or less expensive than a competitor. And if I could get a competitor that's maybe not as good, mm-hmm. but cheaper, I'm gonna take that trade because all you are just ROI mm-hmm. if you don't have a physical relationship with me as an enterprise client. And I think the hard part about certain businesses is you have to have a relationship with the enterprise client. Alameen is insulated because it's package delivery. Only relationships he needs to have is with a contract with the warehouse to get the boxes, right? And there's no need for the consumer to have, even though my name is delivery driver, mm-hmm. all they're worried about is the package. Mm-hmm. So I think like you would toggle those two businesses that have yet to raise venture capital and they would sit on both sides of the coin of give them money, mm-hmm. right? The Leslie Touches of Nextplay, where his recruitment platform is literally dollar for dollar built on scale of how many clients can he source at what flat annual rate and how many um, people does he need full time to service those clients, right? There's there's a lockstep mechanism how you can forecast that. Alameen is simply box delivery price variable over the year peak season when it's winter and christmas mm-hmm. boxes were worth more summertime when people order less e-commerce boxes are worth less what's your average annual cost per year per box of revenue or not cost but revenue how many drivers you need what's the cost basis of the drivers and the operation and how many can you deliver that math is where you want to start if you're an early stage investor that's where you want to begin the journey okay so what would separate someone um 
that's trying to let all right. So let's say you're an early stage investor yep. and you first time first time investor, you're yep. not what what would be uh the indicator of this company will be a success without understanding the fundamentals that go into that operation? You would start by not defining success, you would start by defining scale. Okay. If you're early and how would you measure that? Yeah, you're early, you're early stage investor, first time trying to get into the biz. You're putting checks out five to fifty k. You want to measure growth, so your growth is effectively like a CAGR, um, C A G R. Um, and actually, you know what? I I I I'll get a little more simple. It's not even a CAGR. It's real simple. Can you forecast at current income level, whatever the company doesn't make money? Can you forecast how that grows over the next 12 months? What's the forecast? So like if, like Alameen would say, every time I get a new contract at a new warehouse, during peak season, this is how much money I can make with five drivers. This is how much money I can make with 10 drivers. Here's the cost of five drivers. Here's the cost of 10 drivers. Right? Leslie Touche from Nextplay would say, here's how many enterprise clients I can serve at one point in time for, for what the headcount I have. Here's how many I can uh, serve at this cost basis, of, at this income level if I double my headcount or triple my headcount. So all of a sudden you can start doing math of what it takes to grow their income, their top line growth with the expenses necessary to service that top line growth, right? So if they can make a million dollars a year and it costs them 500 grand, that's not as sexy as them saying, I can make a million dollars a year and it only costs me 200 grand, mm -hmm. right? Now those are really wide margins. And most people would make a million dollars and actually have to, you know, I don't know, pay out. 600,000, they make 400 grand, or they make a mill and they pay 700,000, they take 300 grand off the table. Those are the margins that make sense, right? 20, 30, 40, 50% margins, that's really, really good, mm -hmm. right? Not the businesses that make small, you know, 10% or under margins and it's expensive to, make, to run. So long story short, the easiest answer is start by forecasting their growth by looking at the revenue. How much can they make and how much does it cost them to make it? Okay, so let, let's break down the difference between the two because Al is more on, uh, he's managed, even though he has a facility, he's managing drivers, yeah. but he's managing the tech side of it, right? Because yeah. he's managing uh, basically the operation yeah. uh, from a tech standpoint. Yeah. What is the difference between an investment like Al's compared to a brick and mortar type of investment? Yeah, the brick and mortar has uh, fixed cost and it has fixed scale. You can only do but so much business out of brick and mortar. That's it. Because a lack of reach? No, it's handicapped by the by the restriction of the space. That's it. If I if I manufacture t-shirts and my space is a thousand square feet, how much production can I get out of a thousand square feet with mm -hmm. the machinery I need and the people I need? Mm -hmm. There's a cap. Mm -hmm. It's real easy. You can't work 24 hours, you can't run away 24 hours. Um, so what is the max you can do in that space? And eventually I'll need bigger space. The beauty of Al is he doesn't require physical space. Right? He doesn't have any fixed costs other than driver salary and trucks. Right? Brick and mortar, you have to pay all the bills, all the rent, all the expenses. When you're running a business like Al, where they're not housed in a central location, they're distributed, right? Then your expenses come down to just people, gas, and truck maintenance. Mm -hmm. That's it. And he's not managing the truck aspect, he's just managing the fluidity of the operation. He manages the truck, he doesn't own the trucks. Mm -hmm. The beauty of it is when you have this low inventory cost, right? The cost of actually running your business and it's fixed, right? To rent a truck per week is a fixed rate no matter how much you drive it. The amount of miles you put on that really just dictate mm -hmm. on the gas consumption. 
right? And then if you cross a certain amount of miles, you pay a certain amount of money, but even that's fixed. So he has low fixed expenses and he doesn't have any asset liability, i.e. he didn't buy trucks that make money, but have a big ass note, a lot of insurance, and a lot of maintenance. When you rent a truck, Hertz and Enterprise cover everything except the gas, mm-hmm. right? So all he has to do is rent trucks at a flat rate per week, per month, doesn't matter the rate, pay the driver, fixed number, knowing how much that driver is going to get paid based on how many boxes that driver delivers. And so literally, when you don't have to pay a salary to an employee because of 1099, you don't have to pay any insurance or medical because of 1099, and they only get paid based on how many boxes they deliver. So there's not one fixed cost to them. It's variable based on how much they made the company in revenue. Then you're kind of golden, right? Which is how he goes from flipping soap two years out of year, year two years ago in a warehouse of Queens uh, via e-commerce on Shopify to now running a million dollar annual recurring revenue business. Yeah, phenomenal, phenomenal. Yeah. Now let, let's shift it. Now let's sure. say I, I am. Let's say if I am Al and a pavement. And let's say yeah. for shout out to payment. Yeah, shout out to payment. Let's say we just want to um, raise fund, right? Mm-hmm. You're talking about the VC now. Now we're talking about the VC. Okay. Right. Now mm-hmm. I, I want to raise capital. Gotcha. Right? All right. Because so, I want to I want to scale. Okay. So I right? answered how to how to underwrite a good revenue business in today's environment. Right. And now you're saying, well, I'm no longer writing individual checks for my income for my bonuses. I want to collab with other investors and put together a fund. Okay. Correct. Yep. All right. Walk me through that. What does that success yeah. look like? I mean, the most simple way I can describe success is really the operations of the fund. Mm-hmm. Success looks like you got the committed capital from people that said, I will, and then they actually funded it. Right? That's the purest level definition because what happens to a lot of early stage VCs or early stage investors is they say, I have 10 million in committed capital, 5 million in committed capital, 25. And then they have to then collect that money. You can't spend what you don't have. And so what they'll do is they'll market themselves as a $25 million fund, even though that's just commitments and they need to pull it down and do capital calls and get people the right to send the wire. But all the while they're trying to chase the people that made the commitments to give them the money, they're underwriting deals. And so the problem is they think they need to have a ton of deal flow to substantiate the capital call because you need to be able to say out the boy. But step two, after you get the commitments of people that want to fund you, you have to really be able to execute a business plan. So before you even start putting together the fund, you have a business plan. So mm-hmm. I kind of got ahead of myself. Step one of success is, what is your clear thesis? You want to go out and get other people to give you money so you can be an investor on their behalf, mm-hmm. take a percent of mm-hmm. just you know running the fund mm-hmm. as your, your income, and then take a piece of the upside called the carry, mm-hmm. right? So so when, when do you implement uh, the framework on ROI? Well, there is no ROI, mm-hmm. right? There isn't because but you still got to put the percentage that you're going to sure. I mean, turn you, back. You just, you just follow what the, what the market terms are, right? You, okay. can, you can say, you know, two and 20, right? That's what hedge funds charge. You can say, you know, three and 15, right? Mm-hmm. It's really variable. I right, think right. what often happens is you have an idea of how much you want to charge people to manage their money, right? That's, that's the, that's the, the fixed amount that you charge. And then you have to tell them your idea of how much you want to take on the upside for running the fund and they will negotiate. Usually if you take money from people to, to invest in a fund, they're, that's not the first fund they invested in. So long story short, you have this LPA, which is your document to really create a fund. It's the document that lays out all the terms, the structure, the thesis, the spaces you're gonna invest, what you do, what you don't do. Everyone signs it and they give you the dollar amount commitment, then you gotta call it. But long story short, no one's gonna give you a capital commitment until you 
can clearly articulate exactly what you're going to do in the market. And so I'd say before you even can articulate a business plan, go fuck some money up. Go write five, five K checks and put 25 K out to startups and see what happens over a two year period. Mm -hmm. Go take 10, um, five K checks and put out 50 K, right? Um, distribute small amounts across your network. Because if you have never actually invested in the company, sat and supported them, or waited for a year or two to figure out what happened to that business, took a loss or a W, you have no idea how to really scale that. That's really what a fund is. A fund is seeing a ton of ideas, investing in less than 1% of them, and you have some methodology to how to embed it from or distill down the top of the funnel, a thousand deals, to 10, right? Um, and that's really what it looks like, underwriting and valuing a thousand deals just to write 10. Yeah. But if you've never tried that on your own with small amounts of money, no one else will trust you big. So when it really, really starts out as success, I keep backtracking. Put your own money out in the market. Mm -hmm. Try to figure out how you can source more deals because the only way I would give you or any investor would give you money to a fund is because you have pipeline, you have flow. Mm -hmm. You have access to a bunch of founders mm -hmm. that are all trying to raise money for different businesses at different stages. Mm -hmm. That and that and, and, and that source, that source in the deal comes yeah. from uh, validation too. Well, your own network, right? right. Like, okay. are you tapped into certain communities and right. spaces? Do you talk to a bunch of people who are tapped into startups? Like, how do you source deals, right? If you only invest one percent of deals, to do ten means you got a thousand. Right? Is that math right? Right. Is ten percent of a thousand ten? Is that I math think, right? I think that's wrong. That's, that's, I don't think that's right. Well, we'll figure it out. Ten percent of a hundred is ten. Right. Let him do the math. So, 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 so yeah. oh no, I said one percent. One percent. One percent. I'll get these myself. To you know, one percent of deals get funded. So right. yeah, man, you need a thousand to get to ten. And so long story short, that's why I was confusing myself. It's ten deals, not ten percent. Um, so long story short, you start with just are you tapped into a market? Mm -hmm. Do you get deal flow? Mm -hmm. Two, have you put money into that deal into deal flow before? Mm -hmm. Have you given a kid taking a shot five, seven and a half, ten k here? Mm -hmm. Signed a safe agreement actually did the process of managing your own portfolio. And then if so, what was the outcome? Over two years, did you get any wins? Did, did, did they raise more money? Did they grow? Did they go out of business? And then once you got a taste for what it looks like to actually manage funds put out into equity that don't have a return on it, right? there's no ROI or stage. Mm -hmm. Give them a check, you probably won't see that return mm -hmm. for years, and you gotta keep reinvesting to maintain But it's a cycle. No, it's not, no, no. No cycle period? No, no, it's not, it's not a cycle. It's just, I mean, startups take seven to 10 years to mature, period. So it's, it's a decade game you're playing. You may get some wins in less than five years because they got acquired or they had hyper growth and raised a good amount of money. But the average founder is told that this is a seven to 10 year dance for success, mm -hmm. right? We're just talking about- Isn't that the cycle? Uh, because most 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 funds, before you do the deploying and, and uh, the liquidation, don't you have, typically, typically it's between uh, for five the, to eight years for liquidation and then you start another fund. Well, liquidation is different. Mm -hmm. So for you to get a return on investment, the startups on average take seven to 10 years mm -hmm. to have some sort of outcome. If they have an outcome inside of seven years, then that's a pretty good upside. Mm -hmm. As a VC running a fund, if you want to take, I got 10 homies that can put up a hundred grand I'm gonna run a million dollar fund, average check size 25K, um, and max check size is 50K, right? So on a million dollar fund writing tops 50K checks, I can invest in a lot of those companies. 
essentially you would deploy that, let's say over, it would take you a year to cobble together mm -hmm. and you deploy it in a year. That's two years into your fund. That's fund number one. You would deploy it, you would track the progress and the growth of the companies you invested in. Rare for any of them to have a return on investment because no one really gets bought within their first year of being a founder or second year of being a founder. They definitely bought the business, mm -hmm. but they really get bought. But so after you spend the VCM, right? From the VCM, okay. but after you put the capital out over a year, you then raise fund number two, and all you're selling is the success of the progress right. of the companies in your portfolio to fund number two investors. Mm -hmm. But you're probably going to deploy a third fund if you do it every two years before you really see any ROI. Right, so you have to also get that into your head as a, as early stage VC. Like this, this is a long game for you guys too, right? Like just because you had access to capital and you got wealthy friends who want to cut you a check, they have trust in you. You still have to be able to deploy. Mm -hmm. You still have to be able to vet, and you're probably going to need a team, right? So you have to hire, manage analysts and associates. You have to know numbers. You have to do the math. This is an Excel game, right? But that's on the management of the capital. This is also a betting game on the founder. So if you are a VC who is like staunch Republican diehard conservative, an attorney, and has worked in the same career, same firm for 20 plus years, you may not make the best investor because you kind of have been able to live for decades in this single train of thought. So you might only look at businesses in a single train of thought. Shout out to Republicans. I'm not, I'm not shitting on you guys. Mm -hmm. I'm, just, I'm, I'm giving you like, if you're staunch, this belief system, and you've probably worked the same career, you probably developed the same habits, and you probably think the same way about everything. Right, you're going to get companies the same way. Mm -hmm. So you really take a lot of just like we did in the, the last episode we recorded a while ago. Um, you have to look at yourself as an investor with the same self awareness as a founder. Absolutely. Right? Are you in a position to take real risk because mm -hmm. it's other people's money? Mm -hmm. Right? It's other people's money, and it's someone else that you're not in control of. So you're really stuck in the middle. Like to be a VC is hard. Mm -hmm. That's why it's not that many of them. Now, it's a skill set at scale that gets supported by having a bunch of people below you, like analysts and associates that do all the grunt work. And you can kind of just pick winners after you've been seasoned in the game. But early stage, you can define where you get flow. You can come up with a game plan and thesis of how you want to invest, where you want to invest, what dollar size. You can do your own thing and put small amounts of money out and take a couple of years to see what happens to it. You can tap the homies that have cash flow and want to give you some real lump sums. So you can do 500K, a million dollar fund. And that's all great and good, but you then have to, once you get to that level, you have to be able to call down capital. So call the friend with the money that made the commitment and actually make them send the wire. You then have to vet the businesses that are pitching you. You then have to track the business performances of the last two funds by the time you get to your third. And you're talking about seven years to 10 years yourself before you see real ROI. So that's the real game of being on SHBC. It's as long, if not longer than a, than a founder, because founders get to fail once and start again. VCs take these diversified bets, which means they also they, they fail a greater number. Yeah, because they're leveraging at a higher risk. Of course, and, and they're distributing across a wide variety. Mm -hmm. Right? As a founder, I bet on myself. As an early stage VC, I got bet on 10, 15 founders, mm -hmm. right? For low likelihood of success. And a problem with the VC community, a lot of them are saying, and I'm just going to debunk this, do not expect to invest in 10 and 8 out of 10 fail with one maybe being flat and one being a rocket ship. That's bullshit. Right, that that thing, that process, when the majority will always fail, is the reason why eighty percent. Vinod Kosla says this. Shout out to Vinod Kosla from Kosla, um, but he says eighty percent of all VCs add negative value. They fuck the company up once they give the money. Mm -hmm. Ten percent of VCs add no value, and only ten percent actually add value. I would argue that ten percent number is probably low, or probably high. It's less than ten percent that add value. 
but you really got to define what is your niche to add value, right? How do you, after five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten investments, make the portfolio composition of your investments so strong that they can like work with each other a little bit, mm-hmm. source talent, you know, just support each other uh, as well as be successful. Yeah, I think sometimes the VCs have like this uh, uh, aggregated thought process, yes. like greater fools theory, right? So, whereas the f- founder, they are out of the box thinkers, right? This yeah. is the idea that they they, they they have this vision in mind, so they thinking along the lines of this is out of the norm. We can create this. Whereas the VCs, this is an aggregated thought where we thinking like, well, we've seen this before, and this is what it is to be successful. And that's not necessarily the case. It's not the case at all. Right. So, Especially in this market. No, no. Okay. I think every successful business, right, these legacy companies that we're talking about to this day, mm-hmm. they stem from somebody thinking outside of the box that took risks. That wasn't the norm from this aggregated thought. Well, I think the person that takes risk in a space where existing players play one way mm-hmm. and they want to play a different way. You have to be able to vet that that founder has thought about it deeply enough to take that bet. Like you have to vet the bet, mm-hmm. right? And if you're an early stage investor, vetting the bet is so important because it has to be predicated on how you take bets, which goes to the nomenclature that some of the best VCs are operators, people that themselves ran businesses, mm-hmm. people that themselves took risks, yada, yada, took losses. Um, I think that's really true. I wouldn't, if I'm an early stage VC, I would invest in what I know. Let me just start there, mm. right? At, even if you get all the steps covered and you get the amount of money that you can pull down, yada, yada, invest in what you know. You have to have some level of expertise to help you bet the bet. And then you have to be able to leverage the market that that, 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 that startup plays in with experts in that market to give you feedback on that bet that the founder's taking. So if you have a founder that's like in the pet food game and you're an attorney that only did like IP law and help people like lock in trademarks, the fuck do you know about pet food? Mm-hmm. You didn't own a pet. So taking so betting that bet is founder themselves, sure, business model, revenue, scalability, but you really gotta go leverage people in the pet food industry to like really bet, like, hey, like is, is this approach right? And I think the other thing that VCs don't do is that they don't they do all the internal work for the fund. They focus on how much capital they can call. They don't recognize that to vet the bet and manage a portfolio means you have to have a network of experts in the space you define as the one you want to focus on, right? It's not about your personal expertise in that space. Mm -hmm. It's about your deep understanding in that space. And then you have people you can leverage that are experts. You're 100% right. Because I think it's a combination of what you bring to the table, right? So if you are a a new VC, you may have some experience in that area or within that space. But then you should partner up with someone. Yeah, yeah. This is don't, don't the, go solo. Yeah, don't, don't, if, if you're if you're a first time if you're a first time angel investor trying to start a VC fund mm-hmm. because you have access to capital and you know people who can make something shake. Mm-hmm. That's great. I in still theory. think you should partner up with a no, no, entrepreneur no. that's experienced in that space. Well, no. What do you mean? You mean partner up? Meaning that start if the I, yeah, well, not necessarily. Start the fun with an entrepreneur, but starting that, whatever that business is that you're willing to invest in, make sure that that entrepreneur is at least, it, for a new oh, startup, oh, oh, oh. a new You make an investment, yeah. partner with a founder. Partner with a founder that's experienced within that space. Well, wait, wait, so wait, wait. within that ecosystem. Uh, listen, listen, listen. 
again, I think on, a, on an episode we recorded a while ago, I remember coming to the table and saying, like, if I study something for three to six months you did. and do really deep work, I'm yeah. as surgical as somebody who's been in that space for Absolutely. 10 years. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Execution, because execution right. is everything. Execution. Right? Applied knowledge. Right? Applied that, knowledge. That's one thing that I wanted to say, because last time you said, you know, if you, you have the knowledge, uh, it can trump whatever. Yep. But I think applied knowledge can trump. Guess what applied knowledge self, requires? Right. Execution. Execution, which right. is true. But I've worked in the industry for 10 years, mm-hmm. but I've never run a business in the industry for 10 years. That's a that, whole that's different thing. A kid who just studied in that business Correct. for three months right. might execute better than you could. Absolutely. You because you, you never got never to see, you were never exposed to that. Same side. thing with right. right. angel investors. But what happens if, what happens if, Right, you partner with somebody that is experienced in that, but that's not how you. That's not yeah. how you make bets. It's not how you make breaks that down. I'm, I'm interested. If you're an early right. stage VC, you don't yeah. partner with with the invest with the founder that you invested in. You figure out how to support them as best as you can. Mm-hmm. But you don't partner with them. The reason why you don't partner with them is because it is not your job to do their work. Right, it is your job to bring them access to resources Correct. that help them scale their business. Correct. That's what this Correct. game is about. Correct. Right. I remember a buddy of mine who told so, who told us no, invested in the company, that he had to step into the CEO. But that happens. Yeah, but that's but at an early stage company, mm-hmm. the bets you're taking. But you know why it happens? Because they got that entrepreneur friends with them. I don't agree with that. Okay. I, but I, I no, you're right. But I don't agree with that. I, well, no, no. My position yeah. is don't don't go into the investment thinking that. Don't yeah. Be prepared yeah, to agree. step in for be a company. Sure. Step in. But, but by you no won't be prepared to step in if the entrepreneur has some kind of experience. No. In that no, level. No. No. It's, All right. So explain to me what do you mean by not necessarily? So that way we can zoom out yeah. and get a bigger scope of what it is that you're trying to say. Good question. I think the point I'm trying to position is if you're an early stage founder, or sorry, if you're an early stage uh, investor and you're taking a stab at leveling up, so transitioning from writing checks out of your own bank account to writing checks based on other people's money that you that you were able to gather for a fund, one of the biggest hindrances of you being an investor is being a worker. And so anytime you take bets on businesses that you're able to jump in and run or support physically with your time to that founder, you have a higher likelihood of failure because there's going to be an immediate or there's going to be a dependency potentially developed by that founder. The investor in most cases should be the one you call for advice, mm-hmm. strategy, 100%. feedback, mm-hmm. not physical time to come work on the task mm-hmm. or help the business physically. Right. I think as an investor, one of the best things you bring to the table is resources and knowledge, right? 1,000%. Right? For the applied knowledge piece we talked about. And I think if you are too comfortable jumping in on the company, mm-hmm. then your investors that you took money from, because again, you said this is for the VC fund, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they're not gonna get their ROI because you're spending time working at companies or you took bets on companies you would work for. Their bet on you is that you can get a diversified enough portfolio of companies that are rock star founders, great sound businesses, nice niche markets that they can scale in, and those businesses will scale. If you spend time working on anything, you're taking the time away from the task. So the, the central thesis is, as a VC, you're not a worker, you're an investor. That makes sense. That makes sense, all right. So 
my um, perception of it is this. If you have an experience, if you have an entrepreneur that have experience within the field that they're pursuing. Sure. Right. The founder. The founder. The yep. founder has experience within the field that like, let's say I look at your, your bio yeah. and your bio says you are an engineer and you're creating something that has something to do with some type of tech, right? Yeah. And if, let's say you, you know, along those lines, yeah. right? Then it makes things obvious where I may not need to jump in, right? Because mm -hmm. you have some experience within that field. Mm -hmm. But I think when you tackle in something mm -hmm. that you have no experience in, but you have a great idea. The founder of the visa. The founder, mm -hmm. right? The founder, you have a great idea, you have a great concept. And I said it, it, this last on the last uh, podcast where the person had great great idea, great concept, but emotion, the emotional balance wasn't there. The equilibrium right. wasn't yeah, the there. EQ. Right. Too much dip on the chip. Too much dip on the chip. Yeah. So his, his emotional IQ wasn't there. Sure, sure. So my thing is, if I'm invest, if as a VC, yeah. and this is my perception, so as a VC, if I'm looking at it like, okay, um, I'm going into somebody that has some type of expertise within this area that they're pursuing, I know I don't need to go in. Mm -hmm. So to me, I'm looking at it as a partnership, not in the, not in the sense of we're going to partner up, like mm -hmm. I'm going to be working, know, working yeah. operation, yeah. but it's more like we're partnering because you have this experience in this. I have experience in, in yeah, getting the money, right? And then and it's a, it's a natural progression of uh, connectivity, right? Because mm -hmm. I have, I may have experience in media. Mm -hmm. You have experience in raising funds, right? Mm -hmm. So if you wanted to invest in something, you're gonna say, wait, you have experience in this, mm -hmm. and I have the knowledge in this. Mm -hmm. That's where the partnership comes in. Right, and you define right. a partnership. You define a partnership as the ability to construct something yeah, okay. from both principles of knowledge based on Personal experience. Yeah, the person that's put money at before and the person that's worked in it before. Correct. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, that's why, yeah. yeah. Two different views. Two, two different views. views. So that that's why when I say let, let's, let's do an overview, let's just zoom out so that way we yeah. can get a better understanding. That's even a lot better. Yeah, no, I think I think really to conclude the conversation, one of the best parts of this is, I know we've, we've said a lot and we jumped around to, to, to the listeners, but yeah. to be concrete, you, you are right. There is a different approach from someone that invests in the space and put money at risk than someone that works in the space that execute and uh, uh, puts time at risk, right? Capital and time are, are the trade, right? The investor puts capital up, the founder puts the time 100%. And so both those investments definitely come from two different spaces and, that, and they are congruent. And they're, the, the partnership is ideal if they're really congruent, right? Someone that's done the capital investment in that space multiple times someone that founded the company executed in that space multiple times right so i i hear you that is a unicorn that's a you that's a unicorn right that, that's not that, that's not that's not the average yeah so, that's not that it's so, not that so here's how you actually yeah. solve that right? okay. i think the real the point you drive home is because that's often a unicorn what you do is you take your expertise as the investor managing money putting capital out and you take multiple bets in similar spaces right not the same like if you are an engineer and you want to invest in AI, you don't need to bet on 10 AI companies, right? No. Unless you start an AI fund. But if this is your first fund, you're moving from an angel to a VC, and you're moving from putting your own money at risk to other people's money at risk, 
and you say I'm an engineer, then you take bets on companies that do AI machine learning, companies that do uh, digital media that could leverage AI, but they're not an AI business versus the ones that actually sell AI as a business. Those companies that sell SaaS platforms to AI companies that support them like with the CRM, right? So the kid that makes Salesforce for AI companies. Um, and then you invest in the company that's like tokenizing, you know, I don't know, uh, uh, lab space, right? You have kids that are tokenizing real estate, like offices and multifamily. Then you invest in the one that's doing it for like lab spaces. So you've invested in four or five companies and they're ancillary spaces because they're congruent because they touch something similar, but they're not the same type of company. Mm. That's how as an early stage investor putting capital at risk is an example of what you do to diversify versus like picking a horse and jumping down that horse. Right. Right. Because what happens is when you are supposed to allocate money and start allocating time, you become worse at allocating money. And when you took other people's money, that's your job. They gave you that money to be an allocator, to an investor, not a worker. Mm. No, I agree 100%. Everything you just said right there just uh, sums it up like completely. All right. So um, I think this is it, right? Yeah. We hit that time? Yeah, I think that's time. All right. I, to, to sum it up for the people that enhance me, it's just basically saying that um, what advice would you give to someone that, because this platform is about getting people started, right? It's yes. just now. So yeah. I guess what would be the one or two things that you would give advice to someone sure. that is uh, to get them started or to get them, especially people in the, like he was saying, the people in the um, middle schools, high schools mm -hmm. that just really want to get out there. Yeah. Like, what would you say to give them advice? He mentioned, uh, you know, the, uh, the four units and this is this and that, um, investing and renting. But what what is it that you would give as a, slash investor slash uh, entrepreneur? Hmm. I would give four principles. Mm. So it doesn't matter if you're eight, 18, 28, 88. No particular order, but I'll just number them. Number one, practice on a regular basis, stillness and peace. Doesn't matter if you're eight, 18, 28, 38, 88. If you can take time every single day to intentionally be quiet and still with yourself and calm your thoughts down and reach just a simple place of peace. It doesn't have to be totally zen, you don't have to go deep meditation. But you don't, there's no age limit on practicing stillness. There's no age limit on practicing taking a deep breath and bringing yourself to a settled space. That practice, the earlier you bring it on, is gonna become more and more and more and more of a cheat code later, because no matter what's happening around you or in you, you can simply take a beat, take a moment to be still, silent, and deep breath. So that's number one, and I heavily believe you know, parents support kids and do meditation and take stillness time and breath work time. Um, it builds so much self-discipline and emotional awareness because once you start to be still with yourself, you can actually like tap in and understand what's going on. Principle number two, I would say, is really normalize and get comfortable with asking questions. Not just why for why's sake or why not for why not's sake, but get really, put a lot of practice into trying to understand things. Doesn't matter what it is. And understanding things 
often is not just reading a book, is asking people who do it why and how, right? So be incredibly curious. And I think that's a principle that is really beaten out of in addition of youth. So curiosity is, is, is critical. That's another cheat code, number one, right? The third principle, so practicing stillness and deep breath, really practicing curiosity and asking questions about everything. A third principle I would say is on a regular basis, put into practice, trying something that's uncomfortable or scary. If you can get to a point where you fight fear on a daily basis, and it can be the small thing. You're walking home. You know you said, Mom, I was going to be home at 8 o'clock. Get home at 7.59. Right? Because getting there early is on time. It's scary to do that because there's always this FOMO of what you're going to miss out on. Right? If you said, you know, I'm not going to mess around with my girlfriend. You out with the fellas and Big Booty Judy walked by. Don't holler. Don't. Even if she even if she pushed up, give me rhythm. No, I'm cool. Right? Start building the discipline of fighting fear, right? The discipline of fighting fear looks very different. It could do, it could be doing the scary thing that like makes your heart palpitate. It also could be doing the thing that used to be that used to be normal that you say no now, right? Uh, because you want to do something else, or you made a commitment to another page. So what I'm saying is, for principle number three, is keep your promises to yourself. That's really what I'm saying. You fight fear by keeping promises to yourself because keeping promises to yourself requires sacrifice. You can't hang out with them, can't call them back, can't do that thing, can't be over there anymore, got to commit and lock in, right? So practice stillness and breath work daily. Practice ridiculous amounts of consistent curiosity, always asking why. And really start to normalize, normalize fighting fear by keeping your promises to yourself. When you say, I am, I will, your whole energy shifts in your body to commit to the thing. And when you break that thing, you normalize being a failure and operating on lag. And not to be a dead horse, but the fourth thing in terms of principles, the fourth principle would be in fearlessness, there is a level of just go do, just go try. Shooting your shot is probably the ultimate cheat code because as an adult with money, if I can move and shoot my shot the same energy and same magnitude as I move without money, I'm ridiculously dangerous. Bringing this back to Alamine, right? With pavement. Alamine with no money, actually a deficit, moves the exact same way he would from a confidence and a self-regulated and a self-awareness level as he would with money. With money, he's just ultimately dangerous because you gave him all the gas in the world. So now he's really going to go fast. But even without money, he's going to execute. So if you can practice shooting your shot no matter what it is and running to the L, just take the L. Take the L. Take the L. You can't get the W before the L. Literally in the alphabet, L comes from a W, right? And so practicing take shooting your shot is everything. When you get comfortable with the risk of failure, you get comfortable with a W um, being something that's like static. Okay, I won but you start to really see L's as lessons, not losses, right? When you could take an L and it's no longer a loss, but it's a lesson, what you get there? Mm. What's that? W. Um, right? Sounds cheesy, comes across cheesy, but that's serious. Mm. When every time you know an L is really a lesson, now you're going to run to it. Now you're really going to shoot your shot. It's cool. Let me run. All right, this play, is going to work out? Ah, didn't work out. Boom. Quick pivot. This play, work out? Ah, uh, let's pivot that. Uh, I made like 10, but I really was supposed to make 20. All right, let's pivot again. 
right? Like, keep bang, 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 shoot your shot. Mm -hmm. Because when you shoot your shot, it's not about the W, it's about the reps. So you get really okay with just the reps and the, and the routine of just trying the thing. And as a founder and as a VC, that's what you need. I wouldn't trust my money with for an investor if they didn't have those four principles just as much as I wouldn't trust a founder with my money if they didn't have those four principles, mm -hmm. right? If you can't come to a place, no matter how hectic the things are around you or in you are feeling, and come to a space of like clarity and choose not to make decisions when you're angry, that's big. If you can stay curious, always ask why. Even when the answer seems plain, you can go to the next level or go deeper, right? Because you're just curious. That's a superpower. If you can be disciplined enough to keep your promises to yourself, which means you also don't overpromise, right? It's like, look, I want to get in shape. You know what? I want to get in shape for the lifestyle, not the six pack. The six pack is at one point in time. That's just a, that's just a, a part of the journey. The journey is being healthy and doing my ab work and my ability work every day. Right, being fit every day—that's a lifestyle. Keep the promise to yourself and just do a sit-up, and do two, and do three, and get to the point of Muhammad Ali where he doesn't count until it hurts. And number four, shoot your shot. Right, yeah. execution is everything. Put the reps in and get your shot. Shot. I don't care how if you're eight, 18, 28, 38, or eighty-eight. Those four principles you can absolutely practice every day, no matter how old you are. Mm. I think that was powerful. That's why I didn't interject at all because it's like phenomenal, man. It's like, it's like really incredible. I just want to add two things, though. Sure. There's, there's a word. There's a word that is powerful. And I, I'm, I'm listening to you and it, and it just came to me, right? So I believe in yourself. In yourself. Mm -hmm. All internal, right? It's Nothing all external. internal. So you got to believe all, in yourself. All four principles yeah. about tapping in. It's tapping in. Tapping in. And the other thing is about the L. If you can take L's rapidly mm -hmm. and iterate, shift. iterate is it, it, that will uh, exponentially take you to the next level Absolutely. because you run through all the you, you run through all the failures, but you maximize your error rate. Correct, because you're doing it all within a timely manner. The problem is. People run out of capital because they take too much time to make those L. iterations mm -hmm. on those L's, mm -hmm. right? So you you Excited. lag the L's. Yeah. Oh, we got the L hurts. So I can't do the next one. To the next one, yeah, the next, the next one. Next one. Uh -huh. But no, if you do, if you maximize the amount of L's that you can take within a short period of time, like he said, take those L's. Those L's gonna become W's. But the the most the most significant part about this whole thing is because. You're taking those L's so quickly that your iteration process propels you a lot quicker than somebody that has capital. Because somebody that has capital sometimes, because they have money, they're in a comfort zone. But when you don't have money or you don't have that much of a capital, the faster you fail, the faster you make iterations, the faster you can change the course of where you're going through the learning curve, that's going to get you there a lot quicker than somebody that has capital that's in a comfort zone. So those four principles that you said... They all take out your comfort zone. It has the phenomenal. same effect. It takes out your comfort zone with those yeah. four principles. It builds self-confidence and self-awareness with those four principles. And most importantly, those, those four principles create boundaries. Absolutely. And I think the real cheat code in yeah. adulthood, adolescence, youth, old age, if you have boundaries that are unmovable, unshakable, because you know who you are, then you won't lose anywhere.
because you know the lane you play in and you're okay shooting your full shot in that lane. Boundaries and saying no mm-hmm. is the cheat code. So, and those four things help you get there. So our first episode was uh, the most powerful uh, conversation that we had. And, uh, no ladies are problem. No, all of them are, but there was there was there was a phrase. So the idiom that you used uh-huh. was the fact that uh, no is actually a powerful word. Yeah. Like no is actually gives you the ability yeah. to do other things yes. because it frees you up yes. for things that are not important. Yes, and I thought that was like yes. tremendously. I mean, yeah. tremendous value that you yeah. gained from. From from that idiom so, right no. there, that, that little idium is just like of time. say no, and that'll help. That that's part of the leveling leveling up. Yeah. And I thought that and was we were really scared to say no. So yeah. let's just admit that. No, no, no. It's oh. a, you know everything. You know, I'm, I'm I'm so grateful that we had this opportunity to yeah. really uh, plunge in and and do a lot of like healing, uh, learning. Sharing, uh, sharing, yeah, and I growth. think it, yeah, it's growth, it's yeah, growth, it's it's growth, and it's love. Yeah. Let's leave it at that, man. That was phenomenal. Mm-hmm.